1: On WOR, I have a full fifteen minutes of news and detail at eleven, and now stay tuned for Gene Shepard, right here on WOR, New York, seven ten on your dial.
2: in by one of these uh, big uh, street garbage removers, just scooped him up, and he's in the garbage for about six hours, <laughs> and they finally poured him out in the city dump, and he got out, and he says, that's a rotten way to treat a visitor. This guy was a visitor to Cheyenne, he was Chinese, too, on top of it, so he just sort of accepted it, you know, figures the inscrutable Westerners... So would you please bring it up there? I, poor of I got, I'll tell you. Everywhere it's happening, you just can't escape friends. There's quicksack. There is no... Oh, yeah. Well, we're here to help you out and pull you out of the muck and the mire of your everyday miserable, stinking, rotten listener life. And uh, just drifting an along with a breeze. Hey, have any of you ever seen quicksand? Quicksand. Well, now, that's one of the great myths, you know, the world. I mean, as a, as a kid, we were as afraid as quicksand. Uh, we, had, uh, we had a lot of vacant lots on there. There was always rumors around that there was quicksand down at the swamp. And we were always hoping Bruner would get caught in it. And, uh, you know, the quicksand. And uh, the other day, I'm watching a late, late movie. Uh-huh. Have you noticed how many movies deal with things that never happen in real life? Uh, it's mythology. For example, it is almost impossible to watch a movie that does not have at least one fist fight in it. To so think about that. I mean, you know, all, even little guys like Alan Ladd are always knocking people out. He gets up, pow, you know. Little Alan Ladd is. Little guy, he was about five feet one, you know. But I want to tell you, he could flatten anybody just wham! That's it, They're deadly, just deadly. And uh, they just go down like this sack of potatoes See? Oh, tremendous! And have you noticed how easy guys get knocked out in the uh, fist fights in the movies? They just fall over one swat, you know, down they go like that. There's nothing at all to it. And uh, I, I've been around, you know, I've really been around. I uh, well, let's put it this way I've been walking around and I (laughs) ain't done I don't see many fist fights I don't recall more than a half dozen no half dozen I don't recall two or three actual fist fights between adults have you ever seen any? yeah well of course the rotten life you lead I would probably uh, that gang you hang around with undoubtedly you see a lot of them but uh I'll tell you I saw one one night that uh uh, Reedy was a hair curler wild moment and uh it happened on the corner of 8th Street and 6th Avenue. Now, I want you to think about 8th Street and 6th Avenue. There used to be a Needix there, you remember? There's now a Nathan's at that corner. And uh, so the bus stops there. And, of course, this area, too, on a Saturday night, is Cuckoosville revisited. I mean, every every uh, it, what's really happened in New York is what used to be 42nd Street has moved downtown and there's all kinds of guys walking around there selling everything, you know, you can just buy anything you want on that corner, and uh, there's always two or three guys up there, you know, giving a talk on uh, how war is bad, and there's uh, usually three or four guys on the next corner giving a talk on how war is good, and uh, it's kind of bug house square down there at that point. Well, anyway, I'm with this guy, and uh, he's kind of an elegant type, and uh it, all the way on our bus ride, we'd been way downtown seeing somebody. <laughs> it was a funny moment. just, we are riding in the bus, say, and he's saying to me things like this. He says, you know, he said, uh, I, think, I think this whole thing of violence in New York is overrated. I, I keep hearing about it. He said, but, uh, you know, I, I just think it's overrated. And I said to him, well, that's true, uh, Don. I, I think that's true. I said, you know, uh, you know how you get chauvinistic about the place where you live and you begin to defend it? Oh yeah, it's at the point now where I defend everything in New York. I defend car thieves. I say, what do you mean? They're just doing their thing. Well, so what if it is your car? I mean, what the hell, you know? After all, you're you're one of the capitalists, obviously. You got a car, all right. You deserve to have it thrown. Yeah, yeah. You deserve to have it trash, That's it. So I, I find myself defending the most indefensible positions. So we're riding, <laughs> we're riding in this bus, and we, we stop at the corner of Eighth and Sixth, which is where we were going. So the bus stops, and there's always a great crowd there, especially in the summertime, uh, on a Saturday night at about 10, 11 o'clock at night. This place is mobbed. So uh, I get I, all, almost all of them are tourists, by the way. Very few of the people. I'm going to give you some disillusioning news, friends, that very few village will ever be found dead walking up and down 8th Street. Now, if you think you're going down to the village to see the villageites, friend, you are just seeing another big shipload has just come in from Hackensack. and uh, you know they're they're they're're weekend hippies, you know they they come down there and they walk around and and uh, they they play like they know the scene, and they're always crowding in and out of the 8th street bookshop where no real villager has ever seen. I mean, believe me. So uh, this is a whole scene. It's a tourist scene. It's like Coney Island. It's a, it's a, it's a Coney Island scene. So we stop. And being a villager myself, I, this is very alien territory to me. So we stop at, at the corner of Eighth and Sixth. Uh, oh, there's a lot of stuff like I could, t- I could tell you, I could tell you more. I don't even want to go open that can of peas. So we stop at this corner. The bus guy opens the door, and about 15 people start crowding out. And we get out. On the the, uh, sidewalk, a a, a tremendous crowd of people, that is, enormous. Always people, you know, selling buttons, beads, guys selling uh, dirty pictures, all kinds of stuff going on. So uh, we we enter the crowd, and suddenly I am aware, you know, what you develop when you're in New York for a long enough time, you develop a kind of sixth sense, a kind of radar that, uh, look out, there's trouble. Now, the out-of-towner is never really aware of this. He's not a true jungle creature like the New Yorker is. And you can just sense it in the air. You know what I mean, Jerry. Uh, You sense it in the air before you actually see it. And I say, "Uh uh-oh, something's going on. I could just feel it. And sure enough, off to our right, there was an opening in the crowd, like a clearing in the jungle. And I never saw anything like it, I'll tell you. Of course, my friend died being a true New Yorker, I proceed to move rapidly in the opposite direction this is, this is a, this is a you know this is a standard technique. take evasive action always and always keep your you know make sure that you 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 keep your eye on the source of the trouble because you'll have to get hit from behind. so I'm moving backwards like a crab through the crowd See, moving away with other uh, official village types real village types. you can see them all going backwards they, well hey, here here are the rubberneckers. You know, the, uh, types. And uh, they all crowd forward. They're the ones that always, whenever you read in the paper, innocent bystander hit with axe, That uh, you've, how many times have you seen that, you know? One leg chopped off, innocent bystander. Well, he wasn't an innocent bystander. He's a rubbernecker. He's the kind of guy that whenever there's, uh, you know, there's action, he goes running like hell to get over there right in the middle of it and watch. Because a lot of people never think anything's going to happen to him. Uh, yeah, you know, the innocent bystanders, there's no such thing as an innocent bystander. I've I, i uh, I've never seen, I've seen action, man, where innocent bystanders have been hit, you know. And I have never seen them be innocent, nor were they bystanders. They were always right in the middle of it. So anyway, my friend Don says, hey, come on, let's go, let's see what's going on. I says, all right, okay, all right, I'll cover your flank, uh, so we'll move in. So we, we moved in. Well, sure enough, here, here was, here was the this, this center, this is a big hole in the crowd there. and it was a wild scene. There's a great, big guy. He must have weighed 215 pounds. about six, uh, two, about something like that. Huge character. And he was fighting with a little tiny guy who was, I would say, roughly five feet, four or five, maybe six. I'd say five, six, something like that, but extremely wiry. And, of course, being part of a, the, one of the American uh, hang ups is that we always believe the little guy is right. This is, this is an absolute, absolute implied in every discussion belief that Americans have. Every little guy is right. If he's dealing with a big... Big guys can't be right. There's no way for a big guy to be right. Now, I'm talking about big guy in in, in the, even the larger philosophical sense. So uh, there's no way for, say, a member of the of the establishment to be right. No way. He's by de- definition wrong. So any little crowd... That means any minority, too, by the way, is always right, too. So uh, this is a, this is an absolute belief, and I think it comes from movies. I think over the years, we have always shown in the movies... That little guys are always right, uh, and big guys are, are usually bad guys. So uh, you get these big guys. You know, how many times have you seen movies where where Maxie Rosenblum is playing the thug? He's always bad. Uh, and the loner, incidentally, is always right too. This is part of it. Anybody who is not part of the crowd must be right. This is a, this is an American concept. Humphrey Bogart, no matter what he does. He can be a murderer. He's, uh, he's, uh, you know, he's killed seven people, and now he's on the lamb. Well, he's right, merely because he is alone, and there are others after him, faceless others, the bad ones. So uh, this is an implied, uh, absolutely, deeply held American belief that uh, that a little guy. So immediately the crowd is cheering the little guy, and this little guy is dancing around, and this big guy is sort of looking, kind of kind of confused, see, and he, he he's swinging wildly at this little guy, tremendous guy, he must have been, I'd say, 215, 220, he's a good six feet three, and he's swinging away there, and this little guy's dancing around, and of course, everybody's cheering the little guy, see, well, then, this went for about ten seconds, and I could see right away, the, the something clicked in my head, look out, Shepard, it ain't what it looks like. And, of course, myself, right away, I'm kind of cheering the, the little guy. Well, all of a sudden, this little guy just moved in, and he had, he had the quickest left I've ever seen. And with that, he just he, he just came ac- a right cross that was one of the hardest professional blows I've ever heard struck in my life. He just goes, pow, just like that. He caught this guy right in the, right in the side of the jaw in the mouth. And you could hear things crunching. You could just hear insects. <laughs> yeah, you just—you just, you just like the sound of somebody getting hit with a with a Louisville Slugger, say, with a bat right in the face. This guy just went down like he was hit with a hammer. It was just, he just didn't even move. He just went hit the ground, clunk. And he hit it with the back of his head, and blood is all over there. And with that, this this little guy starts to. starts to dance away screaming see and he ran into the crowd with two other guys they just took off like mad and as he did I saw a little flash I suppose I'm the only one in the crowd that saw it the little guy was wearing blue steel brass knuckles he was wearing a set of blue steel knucks well, right away I realized this guy's probably got a, you know, concussion or something. He's, he's really shot. And the crowd is stunned. Because they've been cheering the little guy, see. And, and here's this guy laying on the ground, blood coming out of his ears. He's really in bad shape. Well, I asked one of the crowds, what happened? He said, I don't know. He said, I don't know what happened then I ask another one. He says, I'll tell you what happened. He says, the little guy came over and he picked this other guy's pocket. The guy turned around and the little guy hit him in the mouth. Practically killed him. The whole scene was changed. Obviously, the big guy was a totally innocent victim. But the crowd was cheering the little guy. that soak in for a bit. You just lay on the ground there. Now this is, this is contrary to the, you know, the American, the American idea is fascinating. We re, we're really the only, one of the, well, I shouldn't say the only, we are one of the very few people on the face of the globe who always assume that anybody who's fighting the big guy must be right. Must be right, just by definition. It's a fascinating problem. So if you're a big guy, you're in trouble. <laughs> I mean, you are really in trouble. There ain't nobody gonna pick it for you, friend. And, uh, and uh, they just said no way, no way you can be right. No way. Well, well, he's just laying the ground there. Well, uh, then we, we went off down Eighth Street see, in, the, in the middle of this in the middle of this great crowd. And uh, you can just feel uh, this it was, it was summertime. It's beginning of the summer. See, and and there's a there's a there's a great wave of violence that moves up and down, from left to right and from east to west, on Eighth Street. And it goes washing down McDougal Street from time to time. And back again. And uh, so I said, uh, he didn't understand this. See, Don uh, Don uh, Don didn't see it. He didn't feel it. And so we were walking down through the this crowd and I'm keeping a sharp eye see I'm watching all the time moving I'm uh, keeping keeping my eye out for, for any undue uh, vibrations and uh, he said you know he said uh, gee that was that was some fight." he said boy said, uh, he sure gave it to that big guy didn't he boy boy he, he, he sure did you know i put that big guy you know, pushing the guy around I says Don you mean you didn't see he said see what I said, didn't you see when that guy had his right hand? He said, what, 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 what? I said, well, if you didn't see, I ain't going to tell you. You probably still believe in the Bobsey twins. I'm not going to be the first to say, you know, to tell you that, uh, that, uh, Alan Ladd wore elevator shoes. I ain't going to be the one. <laughs> and, you know, it's all part of the sea. Uh, do you have a ding-dong in there for me? Let's go. Come on. Yeah, we got a thing in there. Hit it, Dart. There you go. Real good. More sausages, please. Parks makes the Scrapple that cooks golden brown and delicious. Famous flavor, brown and serves Scrapple. Another taste treat for... Have you ever had Scrapple? I've never had it. I don't, I've never had Scrapple. That's, uh, that's something I don't know any. No. Well, there seems to be a difference of opinion here in the capro, Mr. it's Scrapple. I don't know. I've never had it, so I can't say anything about it. That's a Philadelphia thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. A, a Scrapple is a Philadelphia dish. Scrapple. Yeah, well, I think a good Scrapple once in a while is good for you. keeps your blood tingling, you know. I mean, I say, yeah, he's a good... Scra- <laughs> you can make un- endless puns on Scrapple. But uh, is this Scrapple one of those games that play with words and stuff? Isn't it? No. What? what uh, I can't beat Brown and Serve Scrabble. No, no, that's is not the same thing. But uh, the Parks makes it, friends. And let's see, we got a couple of other ones here. And before you hit that thing, I have a note here that I'm going to have to get out of the way. And that is the big press conference we're going to have if you uh, if you're a kid and you write for a a high school or college newspaper the reason we're having this is that every six or seven days I get a couple of letters from kids who say we'd like to interview you for our paper you know I make smart remarks in these interviews and stuff and uh, so rather than have them all come in you know at at odd times we've decided to have a a press conference just like we did last year which was a wild uh, success we had a great time at that press conference, and we're going to hold it at the same place. Uh, you know, kind of make it really official, the Overseas Press Club. And it's going to be held the 8th, uh, the 8th of April, which, of course, is 1971. And it's high, it's open only to high school and college kids, you know, kids who write in a paper or in for a paper in, in college or high school and kids who also work possibly for College Broadcasting Station. Now, if you'd like to get your press credentials, you better get it in the mail quick, friends, because uh, it's getting near that time. It's already the 3rd. Yeah, the 27th? Yeah. 327. 27 Well, that's right. Uh, next week, it's uh, going to be the 8th. Send your name and address on College Stationery. In other words... Uh, uh, letterhead stationery from your paper and or your, uh, your broadcast station. Send them to Gene Shepard in care of WGBH TV. Don't send it to WOR this time. Send it to Gene Shepard WGBH TV Boston, Massachusetts. And the area code there is 02134. I repeat, just send your uh, request for press credentials to Gene Shepard, WGBH-TV, Boston, Massachusetts, 02134. And by the way, uh, you've got to get your letter co-signed by the faculty advisor. And we're only going to allow two students from each school without exception. That's it. So get your letter in the mail quick, friend. And uh, while, we're, while we're taking care of various types of uh, little uh, official announcements here, we're constantly getting letters from people asking about that, uh, that poster that, uh, that we have for our uh, TV show. Have you seen it, Art? It's a real nice poster, really. And uh, if you'd like one of these posters, we've gotten all kinds of requests for them. See, I have a television show which begins April the 11th, and it will be coast-to-coast coast on PBS, which is Public Broadcasting Service, yeah, that means locally here in New York. It'll be on Channel 13 on Sunday night at 8.30, April the 11th. Uh, this will also continue for 13 weeks thereafter. It's a regular series. And uh, the people who uh, filmed the show, taped it really, uh, turned out a groovy poster, a great poster, you know, they send out to different radio and TV stations for promotion. And we've gotten all kinds of requests from people for these posters. Now... These posters cost around $2 just to print. They're big. They're about, uh, and they're on heavy paper in a beautiful color. They're roughly, oh, I'd say 40 by 26, something like that. It's a big poster, a great big son of a gun. And so they've decided to send them out. If you want them, now, there's no no, uh, profits. In fact, they lose money on every one they send out. That's a fact. Yes, they do. But, no, it's part of promotion. They decided that people, I'm sorry they do. Well do you want to know the actual figure? Every one they sent out cost them roughly a dollar sixty. That includes mailing, putting them in a tube, the whole bit. And uh, what they will do, uh, if you send a dollar, just to cover minimum handling, uh, to Gene Shepard, Post Office Box 0, Boston, Massachusetts, 02134. Just put a buck in the mail to Gene Shepard, Post Office Box 0, Boston, Massachusetts, one two. That's O two one three four. They'll send them out, and and enclose a buck for every additional poster you may want. They're great looking posters, uh, and you must allow a little bit of time for them to deliver. They don't. They don't. Uh, ha- it doesn't happen instantly. You know. So okay, and uh, that's the scene. Hey, listen. You know, speaking of uh, speaking of letters, uh, I, I rarely read a letter on the air just it's a, it's kind of a policy uh, this is WOR you're listening to in New York but I have a letter that I want to read I really this is this is a letter that, that really fascinated me and uh, I won't even tell you what it is from and why I'm reading it you'll see immediately as soon as I start reading it it's beautifully typed very official I mean it's a nice it's a, it's a good typing job and uh, it's it looks like a, It is. It's a, it's, a, it's a very authentic letter. But it starts out... It says, Hello, Gene Shepard, Shepherd, Shepherd, Shepherd. He spells it about four different ways. And the meaning, of course, he doesn't know how to spell the name. But then he starts out and he says, Despite the uncertainty I've displayed concerning the right spelling of your surname, I probably represent the only fan that you have within the largest walled prison in the world. Unfortunately, I would much prefer to be without this particular distinction, but then someone must be here and it might as well be me. Consequently, I bid you greetings from those of us here at the State Prison of Southern Michigan, more commonly known as Jackson or Jacktown. Quite frankly, this is the first letter of this type that I've ever written. I've often thought of sending my opinions to editorial pages radio talk shows, political representatives, or to anyone worth the effort of my written thoughts. However, that's about as far as I normally get with it. In this case, I feel compelled to compliment you on your extremely interesting show. In fact, after I've illustrated the amount of irritation I encounter attempting to tune your program in, you may get the idea that this letter is being written by some kind of an idiot. We are allowed to purchase transistor radios here in Jackson. This is the Jackson prison at the inmate store. Of course, since there are limits on the expensive items sold in the store, the most expensive radio is a $26 Japanese job, which is AM-FM. But this model is mostly purchased as a status symbol, since the damn thing hardly picks up the local stations. I have an older model, nine transistor Japanese AM-only radio, which picks up stations all over the country. And when atmospheric conditions are optimal, I can usually pick up a couple of foreign stations. In any event, in order to pick up the various stations, there are certain places in my cell where I have to position the radio in order to get the program I want, depending on the time of day. And it was it was during one of my experimental positioning episodes that I came upon WOR. Now, contrary to popular conceptions, Concerning prisons, we do not spend our days skulking about the prison yard, talking out of the sides of our mouths, plotting escapes. <laughs> you know, Isn't that the way every prison movie is, is like? He says, we don't do this. He says, more accurately, most of us are engaged in the usual mundane activities which daily confront the average fellow on the streets. For instance, I put in an average of 10 hours a day as a medical records clerk and I spend two evenings a week attending second-year college courses. Now, I normally return to the cell block to lock up for the evening at 10 o'clock, and it's during this period that I collect my thoughts and unwind from the day's tensions. For me, the most enjoyable and informative method of dissipating these daily anxieties is to tune into the various talk shows on the radio, and by far, your program is unquestionably the best I've listened to. Now, I'm not reading this to uh, tell you what he thinks of the show, but to give you an idea of an interesting mind that's at work in a prison. Uh, He says, by far, your program's the best I've listened to. And it's for your edification that I shall attempt to dispel the stereotyped image foisted upon those of us in prisons. But I won't do this by going into some long and boring dissertational statistic. Rather, I should hope to be able to convey to you my own particular humanism. It seems that most citizens view imprisoned men as a single, quote, group of either mental retards or vicious culpable fiends through simply addressing myself to the many germane thoughts that you've dropped in my ear. I mention having difficulty tuning you in. There's no way to adequately describe just how frustratingly aggravating this sometimes becomes. For instance, there's only one spot in my cell that lends itself to a prolonged contact with your signal. However, this spot unfortunately requires some rather spectacular gymnastics on my part. Since we must use phone jacks and earplugs on our radios, there is a limitation on one's movements after having placed one's radio during the positioning exercise. It so happens that your position, 4WOR, it's specific, the only one for your position, It's located just outside my cell window. Now, this isn't so bad once I've tuned you in, but during the tuning in exercise, my posture is somewhat peculiar, to say the least. In fact, an accurate description would be that I resemble a bird dog on full point. Have you ever seen a bird dog pointing? He says, well, one evening I was busily preoccupied tuning you in, kneeling on the end of my bed with my arm outstretched to its limit out the window. When the guard came by, making his rounds for count, the guard startled me out of what may have been my finest bird-dog stance with a, What the hell are you doing, Mac? His suspicion wasn't much diminished when I told him I was flushing out a cubby of quail. In addition to my unorthodox tuning procedure, your program causes me further anguish. Remember, he's in southern Michigan because you invariably fade out just as you're about to add the punchline to an incredible story that you've been building for about 20 minutes or so. Frequently, I sit patiently through all of your wild and groovy and interesting digressions, hoping you'll get back to the story at hand before fade-out time. Incidentally, the night you were spelling out your name was an example of this. You see, all the time I had been listening to your show, you had yet to impart your name, which is highly unusual on radio. In fact, most radio shows are about the guy's name. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> he, says, uh, he says, for a while, I was beginning to think you were perhaps persona non grata in your community and preferred to remain as an anonym to your listening audience. And then, at last, here you were actually spelling out your name in the course of venting your indignation regarding the, quote, credit card fiasco. Do you remember that show? He says, alas, you faded out before I could ascertain the correct spelling, even on this night. He says, I have yet to listen to one of your shows, Gene, and not come away with some tasty morsel of experience. Your recent story about Australia was exceptionally fine, especially since you did not begin the show with the intention of using this topic. Perhaps the fact that you have such a wealth of stories to relate is what holds me transfixed every time I can get your program I never cease to wonder at your virtuosity, which is enhanced by the completely unaffectedness of your technique. Now, here's where he gets into some interesting stuff, though. He says, what's more, at a time when much of this country is taken up with trivial nonsense, you are concerned with intellectual stimulation, with those things of the mind that many of us have long since given up. In your capacity, you are perhaps awakening, reawakening many slumbering minds. As a result of this... I find I must applaud not just your talented articulation, but you are to be commended for lending impetus to the idea. Listen to this. This is a guy in prison saying this. You are lending impetus to the idea. And I want all of you guys out there who think your life is a drag to listen to this. Most, So many people today do. And I don't often talk about my own show, uh, per se, but... If there's one thing that I like to feel that I try to do on the show, in addition to entertain, of course, and I'm primarily an entertainer, is to attempt to give people the feeling that, that there is a, that life itself is a fantastic experience. And if you don't understand this, in many ways, you're really missing the whole point of life. But even bad stuff is interesting. Well, anyway, he goes on to say, he says, uh, and remember, this is a man who's in, in, in a maximum security prison. If you don't know anything about Jackson State, that's a big, big prison. That ain't, uh, that ain't the local slam. So I don't know what he's in for because he never mentions. But he says this, You are to be commended for lending impetus to the idea that there are limitless enjoyments for man to partake of on this planet if he but just looks about himself rather than to continually and eternally look inward. That's true. In fact, I, I, I find that one of the things that's destroying so many people's lives today is that they have no interest at all in the world about them. They are continually interested only in their feelings, themselves, their thing, their psyche, their problems. And so, as a net result, they're continually unhappy. And, and it's, this is a, I'm not trying to be a, uh, a Pollyanna or anything here. I'm just simply saying here something that many psychiatrists have noted over the past 15 years, and that's the growth, a tremendous, almost an explosion of self-involvement. The word I is so important to people today. It's more important than anything else. I and our problem. I and our group. Until finally, people are constantly frustrated because they keep running up against other groups or other individuals who are also only self-involved. If you're self-involved, you can expect the others to be too. Now, here we've got this problem here right now of the the urban man versus the non-urban man, which is becoming a really crucial problem in this country. I would venture to say that the urban guy is totally self-involved in his problems, and he's frustrated that, say, somebody living in Utah isn't equally interested in his problems. And yet, I'll guarantee you that the average urban guy has no interest whatsoever in the problems of, say, somebody living in uh, Hattiesburg, Mississippi, or some guy trying to make it in in, uh, Rice Lake, Minnesota. None at all. He wants, though, everyone to be interested in his problems, and of course it works the other way too. So ultimately, when you're living in a society or a time, and it isn't our society that's particularly this way, let's face it, the French don't give a damn about anybody other other country than, the, than their own. The the English are this way, and we're all this way ultimately. When it's all said and done, that uh, one of the major problems today I, I've always felt is the is the growth of The self-hang-up. Most of our literature now today is based on that concept. Most of the movies today are based on that. And, of course, everybody identifies with the character in the movie who is only doing his thing and only worrying about himself. The easy rider complex. And, of course, all the rest then become evil since they do not automatically buy your viewpoint. Uh, People are constantly frustrated today because the others... The others don't instantly applaud your viewpoint, or don't operate on your set of uh, principles which you lay out. So if you don't have a if you don't have a feeling of broad uh, breadth, really uh, interest or understanding of somebody else's viewpoints and attitudes, you're going to constantly in this world. There's no way to solve the problems in the world. Just no way because we're living in a society. Uh, we all are. Whether you're living in Australia, it's the same. We're living in, a, in an age, an age is really better than a society. We're living in an age when we have a fantastic population, we have a multiplicity of individuals, and we have an almost infinite number of viewpoints. Now, uh, if, this, if this is true, uh, there's always going to be large numbers of people unhappy, because Ultimately, there are going to have to be, things will happen. Uh, people will operate on certain premises. Well, we've just had the SST thing. Well, now, it's quite obvious that, that, uh, that, uh, that there are great differences of opinion in this. And I'm sure that a lot of people who have, uh, you know, who, who were applauding the death of the SST program automatically feel as if, you know, the rest of the country is going to be applauding that too uh on the other hand uh, and i'm not making taking any sides in this because there are that's the thing that i'm trying to say that there are many many sides in every issue and they're all valid there's no such thing as one side is right and one is wrong that's so that's a, almost an impossible thing to find in our world today and so there's no question that on on one hand uh Let's take the SST as a great example. On the one hand, you find many people who applaud this, and for valid reasons, the SST is now defeated. Uh, and you find large numbers of people who are profoundly unhappy about it because their lives were, are going to be di- directly affected, as we know, uh, in in many ways. So here you have two different groups, both right in their, in their limited view, uh, and both... Both are diametrically opposed. Who can say one's right or one's wrong? If your job and your whole life is going down the drain because of a vote in Congress, you're obviously going to be unhappy, <laughs> you know. There's no question about it. Uh, if, on the other hand, uh, you, 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 you are not concerned with the jobs, you're not concerned with those people, you don't have any involvement with them, and all you're involved with is, is an abstraction called the environment, uh, you then, and by the way, I'm for that. So don't uh, don't immediately say Shepherd is. See, and that's another part of our problem today. If you ever admit that there is complicating factors in any issue, you're going to be attacked by both sides. Simple as that. In short, i uh, th- for me. If if I'm sitting with, uh, say, uh, let's say. Uh, let's say, a totally dedicated uh, anti-establishment uh, pro-peace type. Totally. I mean, no, no, just totally. And I would suggest that there are complicating factors in the, uh, in the uh, Indochina situation that don't make it as black and white as he thinks. Automatically, I'm some kind of a right-wing nut. I must be for war. I'm for bombing babies with napalm. I'm for the whole thing. Uh, in other words, we're living in, 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 you by my viewpoint, or you're the enemy. And this is very, very common in today's life. Now, his, this is a prisoner. This is the only reason I read this. It's is a prisoner saying this. He says, uh, obviously, he has, has done something. He's run afoul of the law, and it must have been fairly serious. But he goes on to say this. He says, I, I repeat what he said. He says you're to be commended for lending impetus to the idea that there are limitless enjoyments for man to partake on this planet if he just looks about himself rather than to continue to look inward. Now, that's true, and it's not that's not a Reader's Digest homily. It's something it's something that uh, that uh, that has has caused in our uh, and I guess perhaps this is, uh, this is almost the direct result of urbanization. I suspect that uh, since the 20th century, the earliest days of the, uh, of the 20th century, from about the late 1800s on, uh, there has been a continual movement towards great masses of people living in a great mass. We, have, uh, we, we, we tend to cling together like a hive of bees. And uh, since we do do this, uh, we have we have tended to become like bees, anonymous. And this has caused great problems in people. And uh, one of the great problems it's caused is, is a fantastic suspicion of all the people around you. This almost always develops in a mass situation. Uh, wherever you are nameless or you feel you are nameless and all the others around you are nameless, you begin to have a sense of irresponsibility. I have no responsibility for any of those others. My only responsibility is me. Me, 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 all the time, me. So if across the street, somebody is getting getting the life kicked out of him, the first thing you do is say, what about me? And then you turn and run. That's why I told the story earlier in the show. You do this. It's a natural result of the me complex. Now, if you're getting the life kicked out of you, then of course you will wail to high heaven that you're living in a uh, in a mindless society, in an evil society. Why didn't they come to help me? Well, uh, <laughs> there again, it's a two-edged sword. It always is. And so, uh, so as we as we as we find this, and and I think I think that as, as you travel around, I think one of the things that that working on this television show has done to me uh, in one year, I have. Traveled hundreds of thousands of miles. Uh, the name of the show, of course, is Gene Shepherd's America. It's not a travelogue, but we have traveled uh, in in doing this show uh, from such diverse places as say uh, Skowhegan, Maine, to Lahaina, Maui, the Hawaiian Islands, to places like uh, Kotzebue, which is part of Alaska, just north of the Arctic Circle all the way down to uh, a town like Naples, Florida. So you, get, you begin to see, uh, far more than as an abstraction, you begin to see and feel the, the almost unbelievable, and I say it's almost unbelievable, complexity of people living in, in great differences of, of geographical, philosophical, and uh, political climates all around the country. So there's no conceivable way for us to ever have any kind of remote consensus. Uh, There's no way. Uh, And so what has happened uh, as a result of this tremendous growth of population in the 20th century uh, is that people living in in these great urban hives tend to become very, very self-involved. And the most self-involved person in our world today is almost always the city man he believes life is about the city he believes that the most important people are in the city he believes that the most important ideas are in the city and in fact in many ways he believes that the superior human being is in the city so <laughs> you 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 tend to have you tend to have this this kind of ego centricity which builds up and i think it stems from our ultimate anonymity in the city so we have to you know this is a this is a recognized behavior among animals that quite often the smallest animal uh this is particularly true among gorillas and the apes you know that the smallest animal makes the most noise and he will stand out and he will beat his chest and yell and holler whereas the big bull never says much he just is there he does not to prove anything and i suspect that one of the reasons why cities are getting more and more this way city people is because it stems from their basic feeling of littleness in the city itself within the context of this great complex and so uh... we we tend to uh... to try overcompensate for that you live in an apartment where you don't even know anybody on the floor where you live and you might have lived there ten years they've lived there twenty you know they don't want to know them But you're afraid to know them, and you're very much afraid of them. And so, uh, naturally, you you tend to withdraw into this little cell. You spend your time with your little crew, your little friends, in a cell, uh, commiserating with one another and, and, um, among other things, assuring each other in the group and yourself of your basic innate superiority to all the others out there, wherever they might be. And it's a very comforting feeling. It gives you a sense of belongingness. It gives you a sense of of, uh, importance. It also gives you an identity. Uh, Have you noticed uh, how many people in cities today walk around now wearing buttons, proclaiming what group they belong to? That's a city phenomenon. Uh, They they walk around. uh, And and, and anybody who isn't a member of some kind of uh, action organization or group uh, is, is nothing in the city any longer. And I, I wonder how many people are part of various groups of one kind or another, purely because of the social identification it gives them. It gives them a place to go. It also gives them a, a feeling of uh, of moral superiority. to all the other groups, you know, our, our basic tenets are much more uh, humanistic and real than all the others. And so the, these things all all tend to to ultimately. Produce. Uh, uh, this is, I, I suppose, what what I'm talking about here is alienation, uh, and I think alienation again is a urban phenomenon. Now, no doubt, you've heard all these ideas many, many times, as uh, as people people uh, uh, you know people are constantly being interviewed on on TV and so on about these things. But yet, everybody who's interviewed is always rampant. He's always angry. He's always uh, being interviewed about his new book that he's written to prove all the others are fools and knaves, uh, and and, uh, and the more you can say this to people in a in a in an alienated in, a, in a, a time an age of alienation, the more successful you will be. Have you noticed that almost everybody who writes about plots uh, of the others, how evil the others are? The more he writes about these, the more he's applauded. And incidentally, the more successful he is, and the more financially solvent he is. So it would do you no good to write a book, let's say, to, to prove that, uh, let's just take for argument's sake, it would do you no good to write a book to say that, uh, that. Uh, let's just take for argument's sake, President Nixon is a good president, no one would buy it. Uh, <laughs> it's just a fact. Uh, because we're living in an age of alienation where the belief is always implicit that there's a great plot against me and it's always them whoever them is is whoever it happens to be in at the time uh, and that's not just political it's uh, it's it's uh, the people down the street it's uh, this group against that group it's uh, it's uh, you just it just gets so complex that there's no way out of it now I, I've read this. <coughs> excuse me, but I didn't mean to, uh, you know, to get into a kind of a lecture. I'm not. I don't feel that superior. Nor do I feel that I have much uh, right to say these things. Except that it's fascinating to get a letter from a guy in prison. Now here's a guy who should be bitter by all the cliches of our time. He should be angry at life. He should think life is not worth the paper to blow it up, you know. Do you agree with that? These, these are the clichés. And yet, he, this is one of the few letters that I have received in the past five years that is a yea saying letter. I'm not saying he's a plodding shepherd. He's in favor of life. And he recognizes the fact that if uh, you become... And, and, you know, this is, again, I think inadvertently he has said something here Generally we like to think of the the loner, you know, the prisoner, the the guy who is the uh is the one in jail uh, as a man who is a loner and is deeply involved in himself and has uh broken the laws and here he is now. He's the ultimate outsider. This is a, this is a common belief. Well, uh, no outsider could conceivably say a thing like this. That there are limitless enjoyments for man to partake of on this planet, if he just looks about himself rather than to continue to look inward. Interesting guy. You, you know, I'll tell you, it would, it would cause. I bet it would cause a, a real, a real uproar. You know, uh, I, I, I just have, a, have an idea. What, what would you say if we, if we wrote it? Wouldn't it be great if this guy got 5,000 fan letters delivered to his, his jail cell? Now, he, he doesn't ask anything like that, because he winds up, that's the end of his letter. He says, enough said. He said, I, I uh, can't tell you that you have a lifelong fan here, and I just want to tell you I'm enjoying you very much whenever I can hear you. Would you like to write him a letter? Or just send him a card. Just say, hang in there, Dave. Now, uh, I, 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 he doesn't say don't use his name on the air. I, don't, I rarely use names but I don't think it would make, uh, make him unhappy uh, the, the, from the sound of the guy he is. So here, let's, uh, uh, it would be great if all of a sudden he gets 500 letters for people that says, you know, life is groovy. Uh, his address, his name is David L. Lynch. David L. Lynch, L-Y-N-C-H. And the address is 4,000 Cooper Street. 4,000 Cooper Street. Apparently this is the address of the slam. 4,000 Cooper Street, Jackson, Michi- Jackson Michigan. <laughs> and the zip is 49201. He would be astounded. Can you imagine him? All of a sudden, you know, this guy probably gets about one letter a month, you know, and all of a sudden he gets 4,000 letters that say, Hang in, Dave. <laughs> but I, I, I do feel, really, I, I, I guess, ultimately, and, and uh, I didn't mean to do this kind of thing on the show tonight, but I do feel... Very sorry for people who are completely hung up with examining and re-examining their own navel. This is, this is one of the reasons why I, I, I'm totally bored by so many writers who, are, who have that problem going. Like I can't get past the third page of Philip Roth. Norman Mailer bores me. Just bores the life out of me. Uh, and and uh, I, I, I'm, I know I'm going to get thousands of letters from people say, Sour grapes, you're a writer. No, I'm just telling you the truth. I find, I find this view of life where, uh, where it's, it's all essentially a plot. It's all bad news. And uh, if they were only more like me, uh, us, the sensitive people, I, I just find it not only boring, but I also find it vaguely repellent uh repellent in a curious way it's like it's like the show off at the party who who is bugged when people aren't applauding whatever little thing he's doing at this time even though, you know the term show off that's a great term i wish i wish we uh, used it again it's cuz it's a very descriptive term the show offers the ego, the, the, the one that keeps swinging from the chandeliers and hoping that people will applaud him. And then, if they don't applaud him, it's because they're obviously rotten and don't appreciate true talent. And uh, this is an interesting time. So uh, I could just see this guy sit in the slam, you know, a couple of days from now, and he gets 500 cards from people saying, hang in there, Dave, if you want the address again. I don't know whether I'm doing the right thing here or not, but his name is David Lynch. 4,000 Cooper Street, Jackson, Jackson, Michigan. Jackson, Michigan. 49201. And he's the place that he's in is in the state prison of Southern Michigan. Uh, I bet if he's hearing this tonight, he's probably flipping. You know. So bring it up at large, Arthur. And may God be friendly to Ed Cranepool. Bring it up.
1: from the W.O.R. Newsroom. Republican National Chairman Robert Dole has accused politicians who lead the peace movement with sowing the seeds of America's destruction by what he called pandering to the war weariness of its people. In a speech tonight before a young Republican state convention in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, Dole said the news industry was media merchants of defeatism. He explained that phrase when he said night after night on network after network, Film footage of disgruntled troops of uh, casualties being brought out of Laos has taken its toll on the morale of the American people. And the Kansas Republican senator declared, the national momentum to get out of Vietnam at all costs, the national move to cut back defense and space funds to spend all on welfare and cities, these are the movements that carry within them the seeds of disaster to the United States. Dole then blasted such Democrats by name as Lawrence O'Brien, Edmund Muskie, Hubert Humphrey, and Avril Harriman. Dole said of them, one by one they've hit the sawdust trail to the mourner's bench, confessing their sins in Vietnam and asking forgiveness of the American electorate. Senator Dole then said President Nixon will not bend to the pressure from the media, from the demonstrators, or from the politicians who see in America's current prevail and disillusionment a mood to exploit for political gain. Barnstorming for peace is what a group of local elected officials call today's effort to gather public support for a congressional resolution to end this nation's participation in the Indochina war. At
0: Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership.